Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with Lou Weiss, who's the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio. He is also the president of All Metals and Forge Group. If you're looking for open die forgings and seamless rolled rings, like those large gears behind us, you can find those at steelforge.com. Joining us today is Wade Phillips. Wade is managing director of Seraph. And he's got the logo behind him. So if you look at Sarah for just at the word.com, you'll know their website. Wade, you are a specialized strategic and implementation consulting firm. Give us a little idea of what Sarah does, if you would, please. Yeah, of course. Thanks. First, thanks for having me on the on the show. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, Serif is a, is a little bit of a unique consulting company. We have to categorize ourselves as consultants because we have to be categorized somewhere. But uh, consulting, as you can imagine, has a uh, there's a, a a wide variety of what people consider consulting. You have everything from what we call body shops, which are kind of the lower end contractors, more or less, uh, all the way up to uh, some of those recognizable names like McKinsey, Alex Partners, uh, Boston Consulting Group. Some of those guys that do really strategic work. We do m- more of a niche. We do the strategy, but at the same time. Uh, something that we're really proud of is that we get hands-on. Uh, we look at PowerPoint uh, as, a, as a communication tool, not a deliverable. Uh, we'll give you a nice PowerPoint presentation and tell you, here's what we think the strategy should be. Now follow me, let's go implement. Uh, very hands-on, very, uh, very pragmatic. And we do our hiring of our consultants to that end. Uh, so uh, very much operational experts who have done it in practice. Uh, we have some people right out of school, obviously, that we that we use as analysts and train and, and those kind of things. But ultimately, we're looking for those high-end um, uh, seasoned veterans who have done it on a plant floor, uh, specifically in the manufacturing industry. And when you look at manufacturing, Wade, or when Sarah looks at a client company, are you following, where's your starting point? Where's your ending point? in that manufacturing process? Oh, all the way from beginning to end. I mean, uh, our forte is on the manufacturing floor, but we do get involved prim- uh, significantly in the upfront processes. Uh, you know, one of the things we noticed during the pandemic actually is, you know, manufacturing because of the pandemic, everybody was sitting at home, so you can't really manufacture anything if you're sitting on your couch. Uh, and, uh, and, and so production in a lot of these companies, a lot of manufacturing facilities just came to a halt. But the upfront processes to launch new products didn't. Um, And so uh, we were in a unique position during that time because what we did is uh, with our experience in crisis management, turnaround and managing production uh, and and operations improvement, we took that know-how and said, you know, what if we got more involved in those uh, upfront processes and prevented the crisis versus being tapped on the shoulder to go help fix them? Um, so we've created quite a nice practice around uh, let's help you prevent the crisis up front because we have a unique set of skills and experience because we're used to reacting to those problems. Well, of course, the pandemic wasn't, um, we didn't know it was coming. So when the right. pandemic came, obviously, you were now dealing with trying to fix things after the crisis occurred, Correct. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that's really our forte. So uh, a vast majority of our business, uh, so much like 
much like you, I've heard they've been around for 10 years. Uh, Serif's been around for 10 years in its current form. Uh, this was our 10-year anniversary. And, and through that 10 years, we, we really grew up in the automotive business. Um, um, while we do a lot of other business outside automotive in manufacturing, whether it be medical device, aerospace, some DOD work, some of those kind of things, uh, the vast majority of our business has been in automotive. Um, and so uh, we spent a lot of time during the, during the pandemic working on some of those automotive launch programs that never stopped. Um, but our forte through that 10 years has been crisis management turnaround. Probably uh, 65, 70% of our business is in that reacting to crises, whether it be through a pandemic or uh, in those situations where those launch programs have gone awry. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what we do. One of the things that Tim and I have noticed over the 10 years, and actually it didn't take us long to figure it out, probably only three or four months. Uh, and part of the reason that we started Manufacturing Talk Radio was to drive manufacturing clients to our primary business, which is all metals and forge group. And that was what we started out, drive manufacturers to come to our, our forge facility. Mm -hmm. But within three or four months, we realized that there's a lot of things that manufacturers don't know about. And so we started bringing the message to them about things they don't know about. In your case, you're talking about crises. One of the things that we picked up on is that, you know, manufacturers know how to make things. They know how to sell things. They know how to ship it. They know how to package it. They know how to, there's a lot of things they know, but they don't necessarily know how to market it. So in your case, do they know how to handle a crisis? And I'm gonna answer the question, no. So tell us about that. Yeah, you, you beat me to it. And no, uh, no I, in, in a lot of cases, no. Um, so we have some really proven processes over 10 years that we've kind of gathered together to, to react to these kind of crises. And they're really, it's not rocket science. It's not, uh, it's, it's not uh, some, you know, uh, process that, that you wouldn't think to use or those kind of things. It's just that uh, uh, companies don't recognize that they're going into crisis. And once they get in the crisis, they get consumed by the day-to-day -day, uh, activity and abandon their processes. Uh, and when they do that, then anytime you're outside a process, you're just inducing variation, which is going to cause you more. So you end up kind of spiraling out of control. We have processes where we can kind of step in and, and stop that spiral very quickly. Um, we have a kind of a four-phased process. First is to understand, because in, in many cases, uh, uh, you know, we're not familiar with your day-to-day -day issue and what's got you into this crisis. So we've got to understand that very quickly. Uh, but we have processes to do that very, very quickly and then go in immediately into stabilization. So let's stabilize it first. Let's stop spiraling. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and start to stabilize the process. But that's not good enough, right? Because once you've reacted to the crisis and got things stabilized, you can't survive with Seraf being there forever. And we know that. Um, and, and our objective is to get in, stabilize it, and then get out. And the only way to get out is to put in processes to sustain what we've put in there. And then we, our last phase is simply a transition where we gather those lessons learned and, and, and hopefully uh, uh, we've done a good, a good job with our processes from a sustained perspective that 
the court, the company can organically continue to perform and that transition gives them the lessons learned to be able to manage it beyond them, beyond that. So I'm kind of curious, um, you know, we're all salespeople, down dirty, we are just salespeople. So do you go find the customers or are they finding you? Well, early on in our business, I, I've been around, uh, so I said, uh, we, we've been around for about 10 years. I've been around for about four and a half, five. Uh, and early on prior to me, I think, uh, you know, we, we had to go find business. I mean, it's, it's not something that, you know, people, it's, it's just recently, actually, after 10 years that, that Seraph is becoming a name across manufacturing that people recognize. Uh, you'd be surprised in my first four and a half years, how many, uh, or four years, how many people have said, well, what is Seraph? Who, who is Seraph? Uh, now people are starting to understand who Seraph is and what we do and those kind of things. Um, but ultimately, once we go in and uh, satisfy a need, right? I mean, we consider ourselves problem solvers um, at, at really the, the, the heart of it. Um, ultimately, it's to solve problems, whether I mean, because uh, just saying that we do crisis management turnaround, well, what, what's the problem causing the crisis? So it's a matter of solving those things and helping companies do that problem solving. Once we've proven that and we've shown a return on investment, which is a lot of times not what consultants will do, uh, we pride ourselves on making sure that there's a payback for what we do. Uh, and a return on investment. Uh, and, and we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard to make sure that we're actually providing value for the market. Once we've shown that, we get a lot of repeat business and a lot of referral business, especially with the uh, automotive. I said that a lot of our businesses with automotive, a lot of the automotive OEMs will recommend us very heavily to their supply base um, because uh, we do a lot of work with the supply base. So that's kind of transitioning. I would say uh, in the beginning, it was very much go hunting. Uh, and, and now it's starting to be a mixture of hunting and, and referral. Excuse me, I gotta turn this off. So Wayne, you mentioned uh, automotive and without naming names, can you give our listeners kind of a feel for what crisis may have occurred or what types of crises happen in which Sarah comes in the door to stop the spiraling and stabilize and sustain and then sayonara and then sayonara you know that's funny I, th I think we may we may institutionalize that as our part of our process <laughs> the four s's stabilize yeah. sustain sayonara um yeah so so there's there's been uh, quite a few different uh compounding effects recently, as we all know, right? Those black swan events that have happened, you've got supply chain issues, COVID, uh, just a lot of different kind of black swan, swan events that have caused a lot of uh, manufacturers to declare force majeure. Uh, and, and, uh, and it has really gotten a lot of the lower tiers, uh, people that weren't as flush with cash uh, are, are, are distressed. Uh, in, in pretty significant numbers uh, at this point. Um, actually, we're being told by our, uh, from an automotive perspective, just using automotive as an example, we're being told by our OEM clients that uh, prior to COVID, they had probably 1% of their, of their uh, supply base that they would say is uh, high risk and, uh, and distressed. And a lot of that is, is the business that comes to Seraph is things like you know, that, that top 1%. That's actually increased fourfold. Uh, because of COVID and those black swan events, uh, availability of labor, 
uh, all of those things that I'm sure you and your listeners all know about. Uh, we see it in the news every day. But in addition to those black swan events, what we found after uh, kind of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis is that companies were not as efficient, uh, operating as efficiently as they may have thought they should be, or that, that they may, that they thought that they would be prior to going, going into COVID uh, and that kind of thing. So there's efficiency issues. They, they had uh, sub, substantial supply chain issues, quite honestly, before COVID even happened. Uh, and now, uh, you know, obviously they're exacerbated by all of those kind of things. Um, uh, labor availability, we found that through the labor availability, I've had literally clients uh, that have said, well, labor is my major issue. And I ask them, okay, what do you, what's your starting wage? And they give me a starting wage that's literally 50% below the market value. Well, of course you're having labor issues. Uh, you're not, you're not paying what you need to be paying to get the, I mean, when you're competing with, you know, $21 an hour at the local McDonald's uh, and you're paying 15, uh, you're probably not going to get the labor that you're expecting to get and providing those advancement opportunities for people and those kind of things. So we do a lot of that work as well, going in and helping them with uh, organizational analysis and trying to understand uh, where they need to be paying and, and, and the structure, uh, a more efficient structure for their business and those kind of things. So there's a, there's a lot of those kind of uh, things that are inherent in people's businesses and they're hiding behind, to be honest with you, hiding behind things like, well, it's COVID and I can't get people because of COVID and I got supply chain issues. Well, okay, you can't solve those. What you can solve is what's happening in your four walls. And if we look very closely uh, and, and do some analysis, we'll find that you're not, you're, you're not performing as well as you could be performing. Uh, and we see that a lot. I'm not surprised to hear that. I think uh, we've had a couple of conversations around this subject. And what we find is that manufacturers by and large because they've been doing the same process over and over and over and over and it's working it's kind of like don't stick a monkey wrench in the production line that's working just leave it alone right but, right but when a company like Sarah comes in and they look at that production line they, they say you realize you can get about 15 percent better throughput on this line if you did these three things <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. We've done over the past couple of years through COVID, uh, uh, in a lot of cases, our, I talked about the OE, automotive OEMs are seeing a significant uptick in their riskiest suppliers. And we've had a number of OEMs, again, I won't mention names, but uh, a number of OEMs that have come to us and said, look, here's the list of uh, our what we consider our riskiest suppliers. Maybe it's uh, a list of 20. Uh, one company came to us and said, here's 30 uh, of our riskiest suppliers. And we'd like you to go do an assessment of, of each one of those. And, and we have multiple different processes that we use for assessments. We have the rapid plan assessment that uh, some are familiar with. We have a, uh, a deep dive manufacturing assessment. And then we have a, a kind of a five day long, deep assessment. Um, and depending on how long it is, is how deep we go. But, uh, but ultimately we've done probably 200 of those over the past two years, we'll call it. And that's what we find almost uh, exclusively, especially after COVID is, is uh, many of the companies will start, well, yeah, but COVID and supply chain and labor issues and all these black swan events, I'm, what do you want me to do? Well, <laughs> there's a whole lot you can do. Uh, and there are a lot of things that, uh, that uh, tools that we can help with and we can provide and, and we can uh, increase efficiency and 
productivity and uh, uh, get a lot more out of it for you at a return at a return. I mean, we can provide a return on investment doing that. Do you find that um, when you go into a potential new client and you do an assessment of what their issues are, do they go into a state of shock when you tell them you're in crisis and you don't know it? And, no, you know, and oh, here's what and here's what you need to do. Well, I've been doing this, but you need to change. I, I have a favorite expression: change or die. What, you, you know, you know, Lou. The, the the it's interesting that no, most of them don't. Most of them say, "Yeah, you're kind of spot on. I agree." Uh, well, okay. Why aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing anything about that, right? Uh, and, and that's a question I can't answer. Why people aren't doing anything about it? But a lot of what we see is when companies go into crisis, um, the leadership uh, has stopped leading. And I know that may be provocative, and I uh, I appreciate the fact that we don't have a live studio audience that's going to beat me over that because uh, uh, it's basic in, basically indicting the leadership that's brought us in to uh, to to do the assessment, but. But uh, leadership's kind of stopped leading, right? I mean, leadership, you require a, a, a clear and coherent vision that people can buy into, uh, ex, uh, you know, provide expectations for people to be able to achieve that vision, make sure that people have the tools to be able to achieve those expectations, and then hold them relentlessly accountable. And typically what we find from a leadership perspective as they go into crisis is they don't take the time to do those first three, and they just hold people accountable, and then they want to blame the people, right? Um, we see a lot of that. From a leadership perspective. Um, uh, another thing we see is at the kind of critical middle management is that when people get into crisis, uh, they, they come in in the morning, they get their cup of coffee, they turn their computer on and stare at the computer and just wait for the next crisis to come through the door because that's how they've trained themselves to feel productive. Uh, so they're working on or in the business versus working on it. And, uh, and, and that's something we have processes for as well, that we can kind of break that cycle. But ultimately, we, but ultimately to, to answer your question, no, we don't really find that. When we, when we give our report out on the assessment, we give a detailed assessment report, uh, the leadership typically says, yep, that's what we see too. The what is, uh, the, the what is typically uh, not, uh, is typically readily apparent. People know what. I mean, you can see it. Uh, the question is how and who are gonna fix it. And that's where uh, we, we come into play. We, we Okay, here's the what, everybody sees the what. Here's how we would fix that and how we can help you with people to be able to do that, to, to be able to resolve the issues. So when you walk into, uh, walk into the door, walk in the door and uh, you, you start doing the assessment, how long does an assessment take typically for you to be able to make a presentation to management and say, here's what's wrong, here's the way we think we can fix it, and here's how long it'll take for us to do the implementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so we have, just in our processes, we have three different types of assessments. We have rapid plan assessment that takes basically a day. Um, and, and in that assessment, we, can, we look at uh, operations or production, quality and logistics, uh, and, and people issues. We've added people issues just simply because of the, the pandemic uh, situation, the availability of labor. Um, and we look at those things uh, in a day. And I'll, I'll tell you, the result of that is basically to understand, 
you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. We can identify where the smoke is and where the fire is probably coming from. But in a day, you're not going to fully understand how to, but here's, but, but we can come out of that with a proposal on here's what we would go do to understand that and, and, and what we typically see and what we think we're going to see. And here's how we would resolve that. Then we have a three-day assessment where we go in and do a, a pretty good deep dive of production logistics quality and program management. Uh, and, and then, of course, we've added uh, people issues to that as well. Uh, but in three days, we can start to identify, well, there's the smoke, there's the fire. So we understand what is, uh, we've, done, we've gathered enough data over three days to understand what's causing the fire. And here's what we would do to go resolve that. And then we have a five-day assessment that uh, we've tacked on two days to that to do a, a little bit deeper dive, but also to add financials in because we typically uh, we typically don't look at the financials. Uh, and so after each one of those, within 48 hours or so, we will have a comprehensive report uh, that says, here's what we've seen, here's what uh, we would do about it, and here's who how Seraph can help do that. So you're involved as well in the implementation mm -hmm. of a corrective action. Yeah, in many cases, uh, it becomes a negotiation with the client, right? They, they'll say, we recommend say uh, eight people, I don't know, I'm making this up, but we, eight people, an engagement manager, and maybe some help in logistics production and quality, but they say, no, we've got the quality, we'll take care of that, we'll, take, we'll own that work package. Uh, and we reduce the number and, okay, here's our scope. Here's what we're going to go solve for you. And while you're solving that, that kind of thing. Got it. Are many of these companies that you're working with, Wade, uh, ISO registered? They've gone through the ISO process. They've nailed down what they're doing. Um, and they've got it pretty well documented. So it makes it easier for you to analyze what's going on if they've got that process pretty well uh, written. Yeah, and in most cases, yes. Uh, most of the clients that we have are uh, ISO uh, or IATF or some certification processes, absolutely. And, and yes, it's helpful. Uh, companies in crisis, I will tell you, aren't following their processes anymore, though. Uh, and so uh, I, I went to uh, an assessment that just came to mind. I kind of smiled when you said that because I, I went to an assessment not long ago. Uh, to a company, a manufacturer, it wasn't an automotive company, it was a manufacturer. And they said, yeah, we're, we're ISO 9000 certified. Well, it was a three-day assessment. So I got in pretty deep with it and, uh, and found out uh, on the second day that they, that they had an ISO uh, re-registration audit, uh, surveillance audit, I guess, uh, the next week. And I, part of my report out is you're not going to pass that, that audit uh, <laughs> because, because, because you're you're not you're not following your process, and here's the data that says that, uh, and and they ended up uh, uh, postponing the audit. That's what they did. But but uh, but in many cases, when you get into crisis management turnaround, folks are not following their process, and that's a big part of the problem is they're not following their process. One of the things that uh, Old Metals and Forge Group, and, and I'm I'm going to beat our chest a little bit about this. Uh, we're ISO and AS9100 uh, registered now 28 years, and um, we cannot run our business if we were to drop the ball on doing all the things that we have to do. And that's something that uh, your clients, as you mentioned, and not following it, that only adds to their problem. That's right. That's right. 
and hence the hence the crisis uh, and the need for turnaround. Uh, you know, is they're not following their processes. I, I appreciate hearing you say that that we couldn't run our business without those processes. Well, that's true. Uh, and, and, in, and in many cases, if you're not following those processes, you're not running your business and therefore you're in crisis. Right, exactly. And well, we, we've, we have felt this over the years and I'll, I'll never forget when we started with ISO and AS uh, back in the 90s, uh, we did have a fair amount of pushback from the employee staff. And uh, it didn't take long, though, for them, particularly from the sales and marketing side, that they realized that, oh, wait a minute, we now have this and we're doing that. And, you know, this, this is the gravy train. And it's been like that now, like I said, for 28 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's we see that in, in most of the companies that we go into as well, is there's, no, wait a minute, this is... This is the way we've always done it. Why are you Why are you wanting to change things? And, and of course, this is a company in crisis. And there's, you know, you want to hold up a mirror and say, "Well, this is why." I mean, what you're doing is not working. Uh, but uh, but um, ultimately, what we find is that towards the end of the project, uh, the the benefactors of the project are saying, "I don't know how we wouldn't do it without this stuff." So it's uh, it's it's always it's always very positive. Manufacturing is always fascinating because if I'm a manufacturer and I go out and buy a machine, my expectation is that the machine is going to do the same process flawlessly over and over and over. And what comes out of the machine, I should have a process for so it operates flawlessly to the next machine. And if I don't have that or I violate that, then I'm calling Sarah in the next phone call. Right. Right. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, but obviously that machine isn't going to do that with the proper, without proper PM, without proper capacity planning, without proper scheduling, without uh, trained people uh, and, and management decisions from a good supervisor, production manager, those kind of things. The machine is only going to do what you're telling it to do. Very true. And, and Lou and I always watch the Institute for Supply Management reports and one area that they cover is capacity utilization. It's always interesting that where's manufacturing as an industry in their capacity? Are they in the 60s, which is not good? Are they in the 70s, which is good? Are they in the high 80s? And now they're pressing against the wall because they don't have sufficient time for uh, preventative maintenance and you know, taking care of those kinds of issues. But I wonder how many manufacturers look at their efficiency utilization. You know, are they being as efficient as they can be? Well, are they willing to question the process? Right. Yeah, we we, uh, we actually have a, 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 a an in-house software company uh, called Production Net. And uh, that Production Net is OEE based. Uh, and, and so uh, we're surprised at how many uh, assessments we do uh, in companies that we visit that aren't looking at OEE or, or uh, any, any type of real efficiency. Um, they, they might, from an efficiency perspective, look at their labor productivity and say, well, we expected X and we're getting Y, do, do the math and we're X percent efficient. Uh, that's, not, that's not the way to do efficiency, right? Um, uh, and so one of the things that we do on many of our crisis management turnaround projects, virtually all of them, is bring that software with us. Because we can do, we can have it implemented very quickly and be gathering actionable data 
with regard to efficiency very quickly. And it uh, uh, gets us to the point where we, we're automatically generating Pareto's within about 48 hours and saying, these are what our top issues are that are preventing our efficiency, whether it be from availability, performance, or quality. And we can start to apply action to, to making that efficiency go up. I will tell you though, that uh, we're surprised post pandemic how inefficient uh, companies are. Um, so when you say, um, when you say, uh, you know, companies, uh, how often are they looking at their, their efficiency and that kind of thing? When we go in and look, um, or capacity, you mentioned the, the capacity. Well, is that capacity relative to what? Uh, you know, relative to the, the, what we should produce in, in the industry or the maximum available in the industry or where we're actually performing uh, relative to what from a capacity perspective? Because I would tell you, there is a lot of capacity in the manufacturing industry in general that we're not capitalizing on because we're running very inefficiently uh, in many cases. Yeah, and there are some great stories that come out of manufacturing. I remember one that came out about ivory soap and the company was getting back letters that say, thank you so much. We love ivory soap because it floats. And they said, it's not supposed to float. Why is, <laughs> why is it floating? And it turns out to be women washing their clothes in the river and they didn't lose the bar of soap because it floated instead of sank. So in every crisis or mess, there's opportunity and they tracked it back to the blending machines which were running too long and putting too much air in the soap. But out of it came a great product. That's funny. That's funny. I don't know if I believe this story. <laughs> I actually validated the story with a production manager, Proctor and Campbell. And he said, that's, you know the story. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, that's it's an opportunity. <laughs> well, that's like the story of the post-it, the 3M. Do you know how that got started? Oh, yeah, that's another one. An engineer made a post-it for himself because he's always writing notes. He wanted to stick it here, stick it there, and so on and so forth. Next thing you know, he was president of the division of the post-it division. And I just shortened his story by a lot. <laughs> so, so, Wade, I'm imagining one of the things that can come out of working with Seraph is you're not just solving the crisis, but there may be a hidden opportunity in there that they didn't recognize. No, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, I would tell you that just generally speaking, I don't really have any data on this, but just gut feel would tell you, um, we, you know, 75% of it is solving the problem and 25% of it is finding additional opportunity that, uh, that they may have not even realized that they had. Yeah, that's one of the great things about manufacturing is that when you're producing a product, it doesn't take much to discover that with a few tweaks or a something, this or there, you've got a new product, which is a new revenue stream. Right. So uh, that's uh, kind of exciting. And I, and I hearken to the kids who say, oh yeah, but manufacturing is not very dynamic. It's up. Today's modern manufacturing is incredibly dynamic. It's digitally driven. Uh, the great things that we see as, as consumers and sometimes as users in the government are products that somebody had to manufacture means they had to think, how do I take all of the intelligence I need to put a rocket on the moon 
and make it fit into a capsule instead of a conference room, which is right. what computers at the time used to fill. That's all coming out of manufacturing. Cool stuff. That yeah, being, it absolutely is. That being said, we launched a rocket today going back to the moon. The Arian. That's right. The Arian project. I'm very excited about that one. I wanted to look for the flag so that people go, oh, we really did land there. It wasn't filmed on a studio set. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, wait, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it is very interesting how, uh, you know, even with the automotive, I keep coming back to automotive, but uh, but in the automotive industry, what we're seeing is it's, it's, it's a whole different manufacturing game now. I mean, the days of the dark, the dark, uh, you know, cutting oil, machining, stamping plants, uh, nasty, dirty kind of. That's all over. I mean, uh, we go into stamping plants now and they're pristine, they're beautiful, uh, very well kept, those kind of things. All the automotive, the cars, you know, the, the days of the big old stamping body panels and you put up, you still got to do all that, but ultimately it's a computer on wheels now. Uh, I'm seeing, uh, uh, you know, I've been to a lot of the EV, uh, we're, we're very uh, kind of on the cutting edge with the, the EV companies and going in there and seeing their manufacturing processes. Yes, it looks like a car plant, but it's very different because it's uh, it's very software driven. It's very uh, uh, you know it's a computer on wheels. So it's it's for the younger folks wanting to get into to, to manufacturing. This is not your your father or grandfather's manufacturing plant anymore. Wait, I have to ask you because we've heard so much about it. How are automotive manufacturers doing with the microchips that became in short supply because of COVID, and now they're scrambling to catch up and and put out the newest model with all the chips in them. Yeah, we've we've done a lot of early on. We did a lot of uh, you know following following that because it was obviously pretty de detrimental to the to the automotive industry. Because uh, here you are wanting to ramp back up after COVID, that kind of thing, and 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 you're having to build. In many cases, what the OEMs did was uh, they. Uh, decontented their vehicle. So instead of making the high-end vehicle that maybe had the nav system and and all the bells and whistles on it, well, we're going to have to make the lower level vehicles uh, because we can't get the, we, we've got to conserve our chips kind of thing. Uh, in many cases, they built vehicles knowing that they were going to have to replace some ECUs and those kind of things, uh, in, in, you know, uh, or ECMs in their, in their vehicle and just parked them, which you still see a lot of those today, still sitting parked, waiting on components. Early on, uh, people were saying, oh, this is temporary. We'll, we'll figure this out. And in 2022, we'll be back to the races. And yes, uh, we are seeing additional uh, capacity come online. We are seeing additional uh, microchips in the, in, the, or, or in the supply chain, but it's not coming back to where it was supposed to be. Um, we see that we're still going to be struggling with this a little bit in 2023. It's going to continue to ramp up. It's going to continue to 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 be uh, you know we're going to get better and better all the while. But we 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 looked at a V-shaped recovery uh, is, is what people were saying in 2021, and in 2022 we'll be back. We think we're still going to be dealing with this in 2024, uh, but uh, it'll it'll slowly ramp up between now and then. And in that crisis way, did any of the manufacturers look and ask themselves, you know, we've got 141 chips in this car. 
do we really need 141 chips in this car? No, actually, they committed uh, and they doubled down on EVs. <laughs> oh, okay. Which is, which is the need for more chips. I mean, uh, average, I, I forget the numbers and I'm probably going to mess this up. So, uh, but uh, I think at, at the time prior to prior to us, you know, being so heavily engaged in, in electric vehicles, there was 12 to 1700, you know, chips uh, required in a vehicle. And with an EV, there's more like 3,500. Uh, oh. And and so, uh, and so here you see all these, uh, all these OEMs coming out and saying, we're going to go EV, that's the way to go. Uh, and so that just causes more demand for the for the chips. Well, so it'll be interesting to see how we come out of that curve, uh, and it, we hope it's sooner than 2024. But Wade, we really appreciate you being on with us. Uh, Sarah is obviously doing some great work. We certainly encourage you to use this to promote yourselves and uh, and to promote us. We'd love to see it out there anywhere it can go. And the more penetration we get into the automotive industry, maybe we'll get some of the uh, automotive senior executives on with us. Love to chat with them and see what they're doing. We appreciate you being on with us. Thanks, Wade. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Wade. And if anything comes up new and exciting in the near or distant future, pick up the phone and give us a call and let's talk about it and see how we can fit fit you into the next phase. Yeah, I, I will absolutely do that because I'm not sure how many punches I need my card to get to get a yellow jacket, <laughs> but I'm but I'm, uh, I'm I want to make as many punches as I can. Uh, we'll we'll take your size now and we'll <laughs> into your profile. All okay. right. <laughs> and for all of you watching, uh, hopefully you're watching this as a YouTube video, although you may be listening to the audio as well. Follow us on YouTube. There's a little subscribe button down there if you want to punch that, become one of our subscribers, and learn when the newest show is coming out. We'd like you to, to visit serif.com to find out what Wade's company is doing and also see us at jacketmediaco.com for all the podcasts we produce. Again, thank you for being with us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.